Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. So I'm going to go ahead and do this then. I'm going to call you an Edmonton, an Edmonton Literary Institution. Oh, <laughs> We're celebrating tonight your second book. And you're also a, a playwright and involved not just in your own little introspective writer activities, but, um, you know, uh, certainly more in the past when we could do things like meet together you were uh, brought us all together and, and it was great I, I wasn't even living in edmonton the first time i showed up in the woods for the reading and was welcome oh, yeah. yeah like like you say very inclusive environment and that's why that's what mill woods has always been for this city and uh, so yeah. amazing to see it uh in literature um I, just in case there's anyone coming in who doesn't know you and and there were very well might be i'm going to go ahead and read your your biography here oh okay. okay so this is what um first of all i should say um we're gathered here the, office of the, the, the writers guild of alberta this is their reading series uh, which um is particularly right now supporting writers who who had to try and bring a book into the world during this uh, global health crisis which is which is challenging and we have um a grant um, we're using from Rose Foundation to help us to do this, and we're certainly grateful for that. And you know, I'll also say that um, Dolly and I are both on land stolen from Indigenous people hundreds of years ago, and it's not much we can do about that personally, but we do acknowledge um, the precedence of these communities and, and their continued contributions, uh, especially to uh, the world of the arts in Edmonton. Um, all right, uh, so I'll read your bio. Uh, Dolly was born in a refugee camp in Kiel or Kiel? Kiel. Kiel, Love Germany. You. Raised in Montreal, Quebec. Um, Dolly has called Edmonton home since 1993. Her work has appeared in various formats. Her first play, The Plexiglass Box, won two awards at the Quebec Drama Festival of One Act Plays. And a creative nonfiction piece of hers was shortlisted for the James H. Gray Award. In 2014, Guinerica um, published her first book, Lottie Da, which is delightful, uh, which landed on the syllabus of a first year university student um, course in women's literature in Central Connecticut State University. Um, and that's in Connecticut. Uh, she is also a visual artist, um, having studied under Philip Surrey at Sir George Williams in Montreal and has exhibited at various venues. Um, but she says her first love is writing. And I have enjoyed your visual art too. I like it when you, I follow her on social media. And if you're lucky, she'll post a, a, a painting or something you've been working on as well, which is works a little bit better in the social media than, um, you know, all our blah, blah, blah writer stuff. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so multi-talented very experienced um, writer and we're so happy to have you with us uh, sharing your book tonight. Um, your first one, like you say, was from Guernica? Guernica? I'm sorry, my Spanish. Guernica. Oh, Michael Moroli wouldn't like you. Oh, <laughs> no, I yeah, Guernica. yeah. I do French and Chinese. I don't mess with Spanish and, uh, you know, if I was going to live for yeah. five years, maybe I would. But <laughs> well, so that was they were in Montreal originally, and then yeah. they moved, I think, to Toronto. So, 
yeah, they're a good uh, publisher too. Yeah. And where is Dundurn based in? This is what the, the publisher of the Complex Arms is Dundurn. Yeah, Dundurn is uh, in Toronto. Okay. And it's uh, one of the, it's the biggest independent um, uh, publisher here in Canada. So uh, I was thrilled when they, uh, you know, wanted to publish my book because I honestly, honestly felt nobody's going to publish this book. And I just knew it because like, I don't know. It came close with uh, somebody, a publisher in the Maritimes, and she told me to keep on going. It's just it wasn't right for them. Mm. And uh, I heard Dundurn was um, undergoing uh, renovations or whatever, and uh, a friend of mine said to submit to them, and I did. And the uh, editor, uh, the what do you call it, the editor who, uh, acquisitions editor, um, mm liked it and I said are you sure really mm -hmm. like so confident right I mean geez and uh, yeah they, they had uh, and anyhow they published me and uh, I was thrilled because um, you know they are a big publisher and uh, I honestly truly did not believe that this book would get published just because of the subject matter yeah uh, yeah an apartment <laughs> manager in, in Mill Woods something that can be hard to sell to uh, a Canadian publishing market, which, you know, let's be frank, is very centered on, on this. Yeah. On the center. Yeah. Um, yeah. You and I both published with um, Montreal publishers and yeah. that's a fun experience. Um, but yeah, it's uh when you come at it from the West, sometimes people would say about my novel, I shouldn't be talking about myself. I can't tell where this is set. I can't tell where it's set. They're so frustrating. It's, you know, it's an Anglophone urban center that doesn't quite make sense to people, but I think you do a great job. I think it, it reads very nicely. And of course, the yeah. uh, place comes into it as well with the, the disaster. And this is interesting. The disaster of Black Friday here in Edmonton was in 1987. Yeah. You and I didn't move to Edmonton until the early 90s. So we just kind of came right yeah. after this happened. Yeah. 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 Well, so, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I'm just asking you a question. Do people ever, maybe I should, first of oh, all, before okay. I ask you any more questions, if anyone viewing this wants to ask a question, um, we have someone from WGA watching the comments section on YouTube. So please write whatever questions you have for Dolly in those comments and we will ask her here on the screen. And it, you know, it might say you have to sign in. That doesn't mean you are now a YouTuber and expected to know whatever. Just It's your, just your Google account. So don't be afraid. Go ahead, log in and, and give us your questions. Um, because we'll just sit here and gap the whole time, but we'd love to have your in input. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, Dolly, is um, do people, as you take the book forward, do they want to know where you were when the tornado came? Um, no, nobody's asked me that. I've asked people. I mean, I've interviewed. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, well, well, I came in 1993 after the fact, and mm -hmm. I was a member of the Newcomers Club. And that's where I first heard about the tornado. These uh, women, most of them from Saskatoon, whose husbands had been transferred here. And uh, so, I, and then with Millwoods having a bad reputation, I thought, you know, nobody's written about Millwoods. It's a great place to raise kids. It's got everything here that you need. Uh, you know, all the, like the churches and the, 
hospital and doctors and schools, all kinds, the bilingual, Ukrainian, whatever. And so I felt it was time somebody wrote about Nilwitz, but I didn't know what to say or what to write about it. And then I heard about the tornado and I thought, hmm, you know, that sounds interesting. And so I did do research uh, about the actual tornado and uh, I heard stories from people both on Facebook that uh, were here at that time, uh, told me their stories, which kind of gave me some ideas. And, um, you know, I just uh, wrote it. It took me five years to write. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, with the research, I, I interviewed a radio reporter from uh, who was there at the, uh, what was it called, the Evergreen uh, mobile homes that were destroyed, right. you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to write a book about it because, uh, well, it was called Black Friday. I felt people would forget, and I, th I think they have. And uh, so I, I wanted to uh, um, have that bit of history here, uh, that although the characters are fictionalized and it's a novel, the actual events, the path of the um, tornado and uh, uh, the pits, it's an, another little area that the kids used to play at. I, I interviewed Christine uh, Harder, Hardy, who uh, told me about that. And uh, so some of those things are real. They're nonfiction. They actually happened. Mm -hmm. But the characters are inspired by people I've seen in um, apartments because I've always lived in apartment buildings all my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I know what that's like. And uh, so that's um, how I came about in uh in writing about Millwoods and uh, I also felt that uh, the East Coast does not know the West Coast. They don't know Alberta and we don't really know Quebec because I come from both and I tend to write both um, about Quebec and about um, Alberta because they are the two places I know the best. I don't believe you have to go to some exotic place to find stories. Mm -hmm. and, I felt maybe this book might help uh, kind of join the two, uh, I don't know, people, uh, the East and the West, that it's not just Mordecai Richler and it's not, mm -hmm. not just W.O. Mitchell. You know, there is a lot of good writers here and I know some of them and uh, it's not all about leaving the farm all the time or, you right. know, and, and that's good too, you know, but... Mm -hmm. uh, there is an urban writer, and that's what I am. I'm an urban writer, mm -hmm. so an uh, urban uh, artist. Like my paintings are uh, Ed Edgar uh, Ed Edward uh, Hopper, Hooper, uh, Hopper, uh, which is all uh, houses and the urban landscape. So mm -hmm. it's, it's the same in my writing too, because that's what I know, and so I always cast my characters in those kind of settings. Well, and it's authentic of the Western experience, since most of most of most Westerners live in the urban areas. We do. Um, yeah. This whole um, rural Alberta experience is one that we haven't had. Um, and, yeah, so it's it's not just a, a cardboard cutout of what people outside the region yeah. imagine it to be. Yeah, yeah, and Lottie Da. That seems to me like it takes place 
probably in about 10 city blocks. Like she doesn't cover much ground, does she? Yeah, no, she, well, it's, um, uh, starts with Expo 67 and ends in 1970 with the FLQ crisis. Mm -hmm. and it's more, you know, she's left home and it's the downtown area. And uh, I wanted to mention some of the places. So uh, uh, if they won't be forgotten, and they have been forgotten. Benz is gone. Schwartz's is gone. Uh, a lot of the, the limelight, uh, a lot of the places were hung around on Crescent Street. They're gone. My Montreal is gone. And I always wanted to remember it. So I wrote La Dida. And uh, I don't know, that's how story starts. You know, you have something to say or you're angry about something or you want to change or you just want people to remember something of what life was like, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was Lottie Daw too. And, and by the way, people always think it was me and I just changed the, uh, the name from Dolly yeah. to Lottie Daw. But that's not true. Let me just clarify it here, okay? Go um, ahead. Yeah. Lottie is short form. It's a nickname for Charlotte or Lottie, L-O-T-T-E. I saw that. I read it in, a, I don't know, a magazine or a book or something. So I said, okay, Lottie, L-O-T-T-E. And I said, well, what about Lottie Da? Lottie Da, like Laddie Da. And it just sort of evolved from there. But so it's not me, you know, but when you write, I think there's a part of you, at least for me, anyhow, in all the characters, you know, mm -hmm. and then plenty of imagination. Uh, what if, you know, OK, you know, so a boy's living with like in uh, complex arms, uh, uh, father is living with his son, 16 year old son. And this actually was an inspiration because I was living in the same uh, apartment building and uh, he worked in a carpet warehouse and he would have parties every Friday night. And I would sit outside our little balcony and, and I remember thinking, gee, I wonder where the mother is, you know, I wonder what happened to her. Well, what if, and so I started Cody and Wayne, I started to form some ideas there. And I don't know why I write such uh, tragedies. <laughs> I guess I got to get it out of my system somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. It's just uh, uh, life is so tragic uh, so often. And uh, I think in writing for me, anyhow, it was also to show the reader that, hey, we're all in this together. You know, uh, we're all going to go one day and we can't take it with you, with us. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, so in knowing that, that we're all in this together, it may make life easier. I don't know. I like to try to make my writing uh, make a difference somewhere because when I was growing up reading, I read a lot. I mean, I spoke Lithuanian and I didn't know English and um, it made a difference in my life. I read a lot of, about people. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to do the same thing with my own writing. I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but at my age, who cares? You know, it's, it's, it's well, let's hear some there. We, we promised these people a reading. So can we have that now? Can we hear the book in your okay. own voice? I'm just going to okay. click off my camera so that I don't distract. Yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm not a techie. So here's my book. Uh, the Complex Arms, and um, 
It's the name of the apartment building where these weird people live. It also has a second connotation if you think about it. And I just want to say that um, while we know it's set in Millwoods, uh, July 1987, uh, when the tornado hits, and um, it was uh, uh, that day was described as Black Friday, and so I dedicated this book to uh, remembering Black Friday. And um, it's always like, where where am I going to read? So I thought, well, I just start from the beginning. And I thought I would read the prologue. And a lot of agents and publishers don't like prologues. They feel every, everything should be within the text, uh, all that information. But I felt uh, in my book uh, that it worked because the prologue, it creates a mood. It sets the story in motion. And it introduces the uh, complex arms and Adine, uh, the resident manager. Also, the reader finds out why there is a, a vacancy. So I'll just um, find my uh, reading eyes. And I shall start with uh, the prologue. And um, I call it uh, air, air World. And the structure of the book is such that it's like it alternates chapters between the narrator and Aideen, Aideen, uh, Aideen's voice, it's almost like a monologue. Uh, working in theater, I love writing dialogue. And uh, uh, if you read Aideen's uh, chapters, they're all like a monologue. So <clears throat> this starts with the prologue, and I name it Airborne. So there we go. Uh, there is a woman in the air. She seems almost as if she were afloat, suspended above the city. She clutches her three-year-old daughter in one hand, and with the other, she clings to her spirit. For a moment, she is suspended, moving in slow motion, her gauzy summer dress billowing like Mary Poppins' umbrella, the wind propelling her to stay afloat. She has lost the combs that had kept her waist-length black hair neatly in place. Long strands now tumble about her face. She cannot see anything. Then her body hits the ground. The little girl lands on her mother's belly, a pillow for safety. Dead eyes stare at storm clouds above. Dead eyes guard the fourth floor balcony. Where are you going? He was sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee. He had just woken up. Night was the start of his day. I'm going to Vera's bridal shower, Jan reminded him. And where's that? At her sister's not far from here. What's her name? Shannon, you know her. She used to work with me at the hospital, remember? I don't believe you. I know where you're going. You're going to some bar to meet some guy. You're staying put tonight. I've got to go. They're waiting for me. They? M my friends. What friends? You don't have any. But I promise I have to go. He sighed. His head slumped to his chest as though he carried the weight of the world and he could no longer hold it up. Come here. She approached the table with frightened steps, felt her body fold inside out, her face drain of color. He gripped her wrists. How are you going to get there? The bus. He released her hands, then swung them back with such force that her shoulder blades almost snapped. What bus? He knew how to get there. This was just a game. 
an invention of his sadistic nature created to amuse himself, teased her. He loved to listen to her whimper. It heightened his carnal excitement. Go on, tell me, he was shouting now. I'll take the bus on the corner of our street, then four blocks later get off, cross the street, and there's Shannon's house. It's not far, and I promise not to stay long. He whacked her on the side of the head. She became disoriented, kept pointing to the living room window. See, come here. I'll show you where the bus stops. Don't you dare talk to me. Not a word. I said no. Let me at least call Shannon. Let her know I can't come. They're expecting me. And then the tears. She knew he hated tears. She rubbed her eyes, pretending they were itchy. Tears triggered some demon in him. Oh, God, she shut her eyes. Don't cry. She willed herself. Don't cry. She could see Nina hiding behind the sofa, trying to make herself invisible, sobbing softly. What will she remember of her childhood? And then the belt. She cowered, screeching like a pig sent to slaughter, spinning, twirling, running in circles, dodging his buckle, screaming, squealing. He shoved her into the bedroom, onto the bed. She lunged toward the phone on the nightstand, her hands blindly searching for the receiver. Too late. Do you think I'm stupid, huh? Do you think you can lie to me? And he wrapped the telephone cord around her neck until she pleaded. No, it's me that's stupid. I'm sorry. I won't go. Please, please. I'm, I'm sorry. Please. Her words were cut off, fading into a chokehold of surrender. He wanted sex, and she let him use her because she was afraid he would hurt her again. And when he had finished with her, he laid his head with tenderness on her lap and moaned, a baby in search of a mother's wound, a mother's love. I'm sorry, Jan. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I didn't mean to hurt you. I promise I won't do that no more. No, it's my fault, she said. It was always like that. After he had left for work, she bathed herself, determined to erase every sense of him. She scoured her inner thighs and stomach with an SOS pad, brushing lightly over the welts and abrasions. He would punch her in places invisible, never her face. No one knew the secrets her body carried, so no one could help. No one knew to care. She let her head slide down the back of the tub, submerging, drowning, weeping, the water a melding of scented soap and salty tears. For a moment, there was only a kaleidoscopic muffle of water on water, whirling, swirling, a tunnel of bubbles surging toward the surface. She had her breath and felt her life explode. At 13, the school nuns had inspired her to consider a life in Christ. Instead, she compromised and became a nurse. The idea appealed to her innocent vision of herself as a modern-day Florence Nightingale, a lady in white, a beacon to the sick and dying, the wounded and the needy. She had always considered herself an intelligent, well-educated professional, independent, proud, sophisticated. So how had it come to this? How had she allowed her life to sink into this nightmare? They had met at the hospital. He was her patient, a lost puppy with a broken leg, injured, needy, hungry for affection, looking for a good home. There, you should feel more comfortable now. Doesn't that feel better? She had just finished washing him. 
Ah, Jan, you're so good to me. It's my job. Just that? She smiled and covered his good leg. Are you warm enough? Not unless your body is pressed next to mine, sweetheart. The day she arrived at her apartment and found a bouquet of flowers outside the door was the day her life changed forever. A steady stream of miniature white roses, her favorite, continued to greet her every evening until she finally relented and brought the puppy home. It took a week to yield to his charms. The sudden upsurge of water flooding her nose made Jan gasp for air. She instinctively bobbed to the surface, a survivor still. Mommy, mommy. At the bridal shower, Vera sat on her throne, colored streamers adorning the only armchair in the apartment, ribbons cascading down her hair like spray from a water fountain, queen for the day. Someone had planted an enormous bow on top of her head, she, uh, head, she a bridal offering to be opened on her wedding night. Silver and gold wrapping paper carpeted the floor. Boxes from Burks, the Bay, Stokes, and Totem Outfitters littered her domain. There were gift cards to shop for a lawnmower, a snowblower, furniture, electronic toys, appliances, and gadgets. Her parents had bought them a house in an exclusive neighborhood, a wedding gift, a forever gift. If any time could be called perfect, this night was it. Her friends shrieked at the size of her diamond, embraced her, and envied her good fortune. You're so lucky. He's such a hunka, 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 they said in a scatter of words. And Vera's face flushed, as it always did when she drank too much wine. You should see what he does with his tongue, she murped. They all giggled and sniggered like 12-year-olds who had just seen the first male centerfold. Hey, Jan, come on over here and join the fun. You need a refill, Shannon called out. Jan rarely drank, but this was a special occasion. She had parked herself in an inconspicuous corner just outside the main bedroom in the rear of the living room. Her disobedient, defiant legs had found their way to Vera's shower, and now she kept an eye on the door for signs of him. I'm okay. I want to stay near Nina just in case she wakes up. A three-year-old could only survive on so much cake and ice cream before collapsing into sleep. Shannon bobbed to the disco rhythms of the Bee Gees. Ten drunken women joined the chorus. A crescendo of voices soaring, flying, ricocheting off the ceiling, airborne, slightly askew, notes of key. Jan smiled at their giddiness. If only they knew it wasn't that easy. On Jan's wedding day, everyone had thought she and the groom also made a beautiful couple. There seemed to be the sort of relationship that can make you believe in fairy tales. Here was Prince Charming, who was not only incredibly handsome, but also a gentleman, a six-foot-two, dimple-cheeked Adonis, black curls caressing his forehead, cobalt blue eyes, a Paul Newman lookalike who had no right to be more beautiful than the bride. He displayed all those attributes advertised in personal ads on the back pages of questionable magazines. Polite, kind, considerate, sensitive, and generous to a fault. His charisma captivated all. He's got a job, money in the bank. What more does a woman need? He'll give you security, honey. Listen to your mother, I know. She had sighed and patted Jan's knee for reassurance. 
Her friends had comment, commented on the size of the ring. My God, Jan, he really loves you. And when he wasn't lining her living room with flowers, he was offering exquisite gifts, entertaining her at the most expensive restaurants, bribing the other nurses on her floor with chocolates and donuts. Make her say yes, girls. He's so romantic, they would swoon. And so obviously in love with Jan, arms always in motion, draping her shoulders, playing with her hair, kissing the palms of her hands, her fingers, her cheeks, her forehead. Protective, supportive, dependable. You'd be a fool to let this one go, everyone cajoled her. No pressure. Her mother may have thought that he was perfect husband material, but she still insisted he convert to Catholicism, a religion that didn't recognize divorce, a religion that had held her own spirit hostage in a 30-year marriage to an alcoholic. Yes, to justify the expense of a large wedding, he would have to convert insurance for a marriage that might go wrong, an obligation to honor their vows and stay the course until death did them part. At her wedding reception, Jan had danced with an old friend. Perhaps he had held her a little too close. Perhaps for a moment he had leaned into him, permitting herself to become lost in a high school memory. Suddenly, someone dashed briskly by her. There was the breezy scent of whiskey and Old Spice, the rapid snapping away of bodies, splitting, separating, and stumbling backwards. Don't you dare look at my wife that way, ever. He dragged Jan away, cornered her in the dark, and slapped her face. And you, don't you ever embarrass me like that, no more. And he walked away. Jan was stunned. His mother discreetly brushed by her side and murmured, he's been so stressed out lately with the wedding and all, dear. It was one of life's transitional moments. Jan excused his behavior, made the mistake of measuring the intensity of his love by the intensity of his jealousy. She forgave him. The real nightmare began five months into the marriage. He was fixing a light switch and had forgotten to shut off the fuse box. You'll electrocute yourself, she had warned. There he was, prodding at the switch with a screwdriver. You're going to hurt yourself, she kept insisting. You'll see. Call Aideen. I know what I'm doing, he shouted back over his shoulder, but she persisted. Perhaps if she had held her tongue, perhaps if she had called Aideen, the resident manager, herself, the outcome would have been different. He repeatedly stabbed at the switch, punching holes in the surrounding wall, unleashing a buried fury, a steady jab-jabbing, leaving a trail of dents on its surface, jab-jabbing and her nag-nagging voice in his ears, finally resulting in the convulsion in his hand. See, I told you, she scolded, I told you, but you wouldn't listen. And he charged at her, flinging her body across the room. Shut up! When Nina was born, he had denied his paternity and called Jan a slut. He was drunk. He demanded she quit her job. The thing that had initially attracted him to Jan was gone. She became independent. She became dependent, and he resented the attention Jan lavished on the child. To him, Nina was an irritant, an obstacle for Jan's affection. That was when he began to drink heavily. Then the fights really began. You should be able to live on what I give you. What do you do with it? He would holler. But he never gave her enough money. In the day while he slept, 
She would salvage bottles from the apartment building's dumpster, hoping to find enough empties so she could buy Nina milk. She would often battle with her neighbor, Peyton, over a found empty beer can. It's a fundraiser for the Boy Scouts, she would say. Let me have it. A life just held together, glued by secrets and lies. Once she had whispered in the confessional, he's been hurting me, father. And her parish priest had sighed and told her to be a better wife and not argue. As penance, he made her recite 50 Hail Marys. Thank you. I'll stop here because that's my 11 minutes. We have time I could continue or answer your questions. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> okay, so they all fell asleep. Hi, Dolly. Hi, Jason. It's Did not Jennifer. <laughs> Jennifer's typing. Jennifer's typing in technical difficulties, so oh. I will jump in. Yeah. So somebody had a turning your turning your turning your camera off can sometimes yeah uh, mean that it won't turn back on. Somebody had a question um, just before you started reading. Um, Jane has asked, I would love to hear Dolly speak about how a short story she wrote inspired this novel. Is that true? Is this based off a short story? Uh, yeah, I, I started it as a short story and uh, it didn't work out. Uh, it wasn't su successful. And uh, uh, that's when I learned that I'm more of a novelist and not a short story writer. I don't know how to write short stories. I don't know. Although I had a couple published, but uh, I used some of the things uh, from the short story in the novel, uh, some of it, yeah, but not all of it. So I don't know if that answers the complete question. But how long was the how, how long was the short story that you wrote? I can't remember. Uh, it was so long ago, you know. I know this book took me five years and one year of editing and more editing. But the short story, I really cannot, I think it, I was in a workshop at that time. And that was, a, I mean, must have been six years ago, six, seven years ago. Well, it was almost around the time I came here. I was trying to feel myself around what, what kind of writing that I want to do. You know, uh, should I do freelance? And uh, I had a wonderful friend, Virginia Dirksen, who uh, I would meet every uh, Monday after work uh, at her office. She was a freelance writer. We'd just talk. She was one of the first writers I met. And I said, I'm just trying to figure out what kind of writer I want to be. And then because she thought, maybe, what about a freelance writer? You want part of my business or, you know. And then at the end of summer, um, she said to me, you know, I think you want to be a, a fiction novelist. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. I think I like I like the just diving into the story and taking on everybody's parts. Uh, but a short story... And a short story is hard to write, you know, so I uh, acknowledge uh, the expertise of people who do write short stories and uh, are winners in that field. Uh, but uh, 
you know, there's, what do they call it, the marathon uh, runners, that's me, and then there's the sprinters, that's the short story. Yeah. Right? So I'm yeah. the marathoner, I just go on and on and on and and on and on and on. <laughs> and your and your your heart rate is like you know like thirty beats a minute or whatever the those yeah. marathoners are. So so here's a question for you. So I see Jennifer's trying to come back in, but um, you talk about five years of writing, the research. You also talk about the editing. So so people that are watching, um, people that are also writers or people are working on their first their first book um, or maybe even you know their second or third book. Uh, what kind of advice do you have to, to people that they feel like they're on year two or year three and they just, you know, they um, feel like it's taking, you know, it's taking too long or what kind of things do you have to say to that? Don't give up. Never. If that's what you want to do, just keep doing it. And if you feel you can't do it because you don't have a degree in creative writing, forget it. Mordecai Richler and a few other writers said, Go to university, learn everything, and then forget everything and just write. And that's what I say, just write. And uh, uh, you'll find your way, you'll find your story. I always say write like the whatever you're writing won't get published. Just write that way. And then then you feel there's a freedom you feel. You say, ah, the hell, I can write whatever I want. I know this isn't going to get published. And then these things come out of your head and imagination. Uh, so uh, that that is one of the things I always uh, tell writers, and I always get that, you know, how do I write? Uh, and I, the cliche is, well, you just write, and if you're a true writer, you don't give up. You never give up. You just keep practicing and uh, and writing, and uh, if that's your love, and that is my love, uh, next to uh, my painting and my my grandson, you know, not in that order, but. <laughs> and um so somebody else had a question here i didn't write his name i didn't i'll go back and check the name but um so this is about the the characters that um that you write about in uh, in your new novel the complex arm so it says how do you deal with getting people past the feeling of wondering why the heck she stays with him i know that often women do um, um so i think they're getting at this this kind of you know you're trying to make a sympathetic character but um, you know, there's a lot of, there, well, there's a lot of complexity there. Well, Frank yeah, has this question. Yeah, well, I think you said it right there. It's very uh, complex uh, situation. Usually uh, the woman doesn't have any money or any place to go. And uh, uh, I mean, I know of a case, uh, that was my mother, and uh, there weren't any shelters in the 60s. And uh, you stay you work, you try to save your money, you try to help your kids. Um, and I don't know, I think there must be a lot of different reasons and I'm not privy to all of them, but um, yeah, you say to them, because, and what I read was that most of the time these women are very intelligent and independent, which is what I say in my book. And so how had it come to this, you know? And, uh, I don't know. It's a good question, and uh, 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 the best thing would be, you know, to uh, to uh, go to a women's shelter, talk to them. But I read a lot about that too. Uh, you know, and women don't have the confidence, and uh, um, they just stay because, especially, you know, for the kids, they say because they. It's usually a question of money. 
So if we can get women to uh, make a good salary and uh, get into a good situation and uh, uh, make a life for themselves and their kids and not stay with a pervert or a demon, whatever, uh, then I think the world would be a, a better place. And uh, so... So I'll give uh, I'll give people uh, one more chance. We'll probably have time for one more question if they write it in the chat. But I, I, the the last question I had was um, also you're talking about research, um, and you were just telling you know the the other piece of advice you had was you know just write and and don't worry about whether you're going to get published or not. So in in terms of you know how much how important is it for you to to research? Is it something you always do with everything you write, or is it you just wanted to do it for? For this particular book to get certain details right, or what you know, what role does research play? No, I've always researched, even in uh, Lottie Dell, my first book, uh, just to make sure I got the facts right and dates, and that's uh, what I wanted. What I did in the complex uh, arms, also, um, like I said, I spoke to a radio reporter who was at the Evergreen Trailer Park where the devastation happened. I read the uh, uh, Edmonton Journal's uh, archives. Uh, I spoke to people uh, who were there or saw it. Uh, and I like talking to people and getting their story. And uh, uh, so uh, that's, you know, you just do uh, your research. Because although it's a novel, I did want to make sure that uh, the um, information about the tornado was authentic because people who were here then would see ah yeah 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 and so that's why yeah i uh and i like research you always learn something and uh you get inspired too i found you know like uh, what happens to to what uh, aideen does at the end i was reading a lot about that kind of situation and i won't tell you what it is you have to buy the book spoil a spoiler alert they say you know but I was reading a lot at that time about that and uh, about uh, uh, the weather, you know, especially burning forests. And uh, I just, you just kind of connect, you know, it's just, you let your imagination go, you know, you say, what if, or, uh, and then it changes. Because uh, I don't do outlines, I just go with it. Like I said, I'm a marathoner. And if I trip, I trip, but then I keep on going and suddenly I find something else, you know. But that's me and everybody has their own way and uh, you just do it and don't, you know, workshops are great. I took a lot of workshops when I came here and I learned a lot, but in the end it comes down to you, you writing it and writing it your way in your voice, you know, because you don't want to sound like everybody else, especially, you know, if you're being taught by um, an academic, you know, they all sound the same, I'm sorry. But I love academics. Uh, but they all sound the same. You know what I mean? Like every I yeah. has dotted every T. You know, do it your way. Say it your way. Just let it, let it go. And uh, like I say, write it so this book you're writing won't get published. And you'd just be surprised at the things that come out. Even your mother would be embarrassed. <laughs> no, but that, that's me. But everybody's different. So, so on that, on that, that final note of, of doing things your way. So uh, why don't you let people know where they could find the book uh, if it's out now and, and maybe uh, you have some other stuff coming up where people can also, uh, you know, see you and hear you read and, and chat a little bit more. 
Yeah, sure. I'll just say I have some notes because I didn't want to forget anything. Um, I did want to thank before I forget uh, the WGA and organizers for this reading series and the Rosa Foundation for the funding. Uh, the book is finally available locally at Audrey. So uh, buy locally and uh, support our bookstores and uh, writers. And uh, and they're, they are, they're always restocking. And if you're not in Edmonton, uh, check your bookstore anyhow and ask them for the book and they'll order it. Um, I've been, okay, so I've been invited by the organizers of the Word on the Street Toronto to participate in an online panel discussion with the uh, host uh, Cordelia Strub, or Strub, I, I'm sorry, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but for those who don't know, I'll just read here so I, don't, I get it right. Uh, this year's Word on the Street Festival will be held as an online festival, like everything else, right? of ideas, storytelling, and imagination, with my appearance on Saturday, September 26th, beginning at noon and lasting 45 minutes. Um, uh, I don't know who's uh, who else is on the panel, and I don't know what the discussion will be. Uh, I'm told that uh, I'll receive more information as we get closer to the date, which is um, September, uh, the end of uh, August, uh, well, we're in August, right? No, we're in September 26, 27. And uh, if I don't get a chance, I just want to say also my thanks to Jennifer Quist for interviewing me. Uh, she is so cute. And um, she too has a book out, by the way. Hey, The Acopolis, uh, The Apocalypse of Morgan Turner. So check her out, okay? Uh, and uh, everybody else, thank you for listening. Although I probably said this too early, did I? <laughs> so that's basically what I wanted to say. And uh, it will be um, a video to the panel discussion. Uh, people know the word on the street uh, festival, and like everything else, I say, like I said, it's uh, online. And uh, I was really surprised when uh, the publicists of Dunder and told me this. Uh, they've invited you and. And I said, really? What, uh, so I don't know. I don't know, but uh, uh, I'll put it on my Facebook and uh, Instagram. I'm on uh, Facebook and I'm on Instagram is uh, dolly.dennis.10. And uh, my main uh, my main thing is uh, uh, please support your bookstores, the local bookstores, and support the writers, all writers here in Alberta. Uh, just there are so many and so many unknown and so many good ones that, uh, you know, what the Writers Guild is doing is fantastic. So uh, uh, please, readers, do that. OK, promise me. So help me, God. So help me, God. <laughs> so I think that's all I wanted to say. And I'm ready to go. OK, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we're all we're all uh we're all ready that was that was great dolly and um uh people were writing in the chat they're saying congratulations on the book looking forward to reading the book um and i know jennifer who can't get back in because of uh -huh. her her camera but she's she's here and she says thank you so much and uh but thank you very much to jennifer quist for for hosting i thought it was great to get you two chatting and um and um and thanks for your for for her hosting job so um I will uh, I will sign off there once again thank you Dolly and and good best of luck with the book
My pleasure.